ancient words. Uh, that's what we've been doing now for several weeks is uh, looking at some ancient words over 2,000 years old uh, written by a tax collector by the name of Levi who is also known as Matthew. Uh, we're a little bit more than halfway. In fact, we just passed the halfway mark of this incredible gospel in our series entitled As You Go. Uh, And we're basically looking at Matthew to say, how did Jesus make disciples? Because that's what he calls us to be, is is disciple makers. So how did he make disciples, and how do we follow his example in making disciples as well? Now, as you know, we do uh, quizzes uh, from time to time. Today is a quiz morning, and so let me begin with question number one. In what chapters do you find the Sermon on the Mount? All right. Pete, did you say two? <laughs> All right, now now some of you are saying, haven't you asked this question before? Almost every other week. Because it's so important for understanding the structure of Matthew. And of course, there's three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, and they are found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. You get that down, you've got the Beatitudes, you've got uh, different comments about wealth, you've got, you know, the passage about not judging. I mean, so much of who we are as Christians comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you get where it's at, uh, you really understand kind of Matthew's uh, structure as well as Jesus' teaching. Question number two, in which chapter is the feeding of the 5,000? I hope I'm not going to be disappointed on this one. Anybody remember when I preached on the feeding of the 5,000? Last Sunday, all right. Some of y'all are going, really? Okay, yeah. Uh, Feeding of the 5,000. Let me give you a way of remembering the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Feeding of the 5,000 is in 14. The feeding of the 4,000 is in 15. All right? So Matthew 14, 5. Matthew 15, 4. And so that's how you remember in which chapter they're found at. Number, question number three, in which chapter do we uh, read a collection of parables of Jesus? Again, kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, the next major block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel is uh, on the limited commission, and then the third one is on the parables, and that's found in chapter, uh, and I've got chapters 13. Didn't get June to proofread like I should have. It's chapter 13. All right, get away from that one. Uh, question number four, in which chapter does Peter walk on water? And, of course, if you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the whole point of Jesus walking to them on the water is because they they were upset at Jesus. Their hearts had been hardened because Jesus had forced them to leave based on an attempt to try to force him to become king. And so it's found in the same chapter as the feeding of the 5,000, which, of course, is in chapter, and I've got chapters 14 there, too. Wow. Boy, y'all don't know how much trouble I'm in when I get home. Uh, June wears me out when I make those types of mistakes. Question number five, moving a little bit more serious. When is Memorial Day? And David's already mentioned. Memorial Day is tomorrow, May 29th. A day that our country pauses to remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice that we can meet the way we're meeting today. Jen and I were driving by the National Cemetery down on Gallatin Road just yesterday morning. And scouts were going out with their flags to place on the graves of those who 
Many gave their lives. Others who are buried there who served our country. And I don't know if you have members of your family who've paid the ultimate price. Uh, When I first started dating June, I would go into her family's living room, and there over the mantle was a picture of her Uncle Bud. And, And June never knew her uncle because, you see, he died parachuting into Italy during World War II, giving the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And so I want to ask us, if we would, just for a moment, let's have a moment of silence as we pay respects, as you say your own personal prayer, for those who have given the ultimate price. Thank you. We are moving today into Matthew 15. And in Matthew 15 is a fascinating text. Uh, one reason it's fascinating is because it's part of a structure that Matthew develops in his gospel. One of the things that unfortunately we don't do a good job of is understanding that scripture oftentimes has structure to it. In other words, it's written in a way to be memorized. Uh, early Christians did not have what we have. They did not have copies of Scripture. It was way too expensive. And so what you did was you did a lot of memorization. And so they would come up with all these different techniques to help you kind of understand the flow of the stories about Jesus. Matthew did that in his gospel in a fascinating way. This is what's called a chiasm. Uh, and, and chiasms are structures that, if you'll notice, it begins with A, B, C, D, and then reverses the other direction, C, B, A. And this is a structure you find in Matthew's gospel, and, and basically A at the top corresponds to A at the bottom, B does the same thing, C does the same thing, with the primary text being right in the middle. And that primary text is what Matthew's trying to get across is the point that Matthew's trying to make. Notice how Matthew structures this particular section of his gospel. He begins with two blind men coming to Jesus and simply saying to Jesus, Son of David, would you heal us? And Jesus heals them. Okay? Now that's found in chapter 9. Notice down here at the very bottom, as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, we know from other accounts he runs into a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus. Matthew leaves that fact out. Why? Because Matthew's not nearly as interested in the character of the story as he is in the nature of the story. And he tells us that there were actually two blind men, and they too refer to Jesus as son of David. And so notice, two blind men, son of David. Two blind men, son of David. Look at the next structure. Sign of Jonah. Pharisees come up to Jesus. We want you to give us a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign, which, of course, is ridiculous because that's all he had been given was signs. I mean, every miracle he performed was a sign, but they couldn't see it. And so they said, we want a sign. And he said, no, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, 12, 28 to 42. And then notice in chapter 16 next week, you have the sign of Jonah. And and so you get, you know, two blind men, two signs of Jonah, And then notice the feeding of the 5,000 last week, the feeding of the 4,000 this week. And so you get these two separate feedings. And then right in the middle of it is this strange story 
of Jesus healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman. What's Matthew doing? Well, we're going to look at that today. Now, it's going to take us a moment to get there, so let's jump in to chapter 15. Chapter 15 begins with, notice here, the Pharisees and the scribes coming from Jerusalem. You know you're in trouble when they come from Jerusalem. All right? I mean, that's like someone calling you up going, this is the IRS. We want to come and talk to you. Oh, no, no, no. Or we want you to come in and talk to us. Oh, no. Or, or do you remember when you were in elementary school and, and the teacher said, you need to go down and see the principal? Y'all remember that? We got a lot of educators here. I appreciate all of our educators. But let me tell you, I was scared to death of Ms. Neighbors. And you go, why? Because everybody knew Ms. Neighbors had an electric paddle. How many of y'all remember hearing that? Anybody else remember? Dennis probably experienced it. He didn't just hear about it. He experienced it. But boy, I was told Ms. Neighbors got, and I believed it. She's got an electric paddle. You don't want to go see Ms. Neighbors. Well, here's these Pharisee scribes. They come from Jerusalem, and Jesus is like, okay, this is going to get fun. And look at what they said. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. That's right, Pete. (laughs) By the way, if y'all don't know, I pay Pete to say stuff like that. (laughs) He's always perfect. Yeah. By the way, some of y'all had a mother who was like that. I mean, you like, you get up and wash those hands. You're not eating supper until you wash your hands. Now, this, however, is far more serious because this didn't have to do necessarily with getting the dirt off your hands as much as it had to do with ritual cleanness, okay? And so they come and they ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice the language there, the tradition of the elders, Now, what's fascinating about this is that if you go over to Luke, Luke tells us that it wasn't just his disciples. You know, where did Peter and and Andrew and James and John get that from? Well, look at uh, Luke chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. He goes in, he reclines at his table, and watch the Pharisee. The Pharisee was astonished. Why? Jesus didn't wash his hands. I mean, he sits down to eat, and he, his hands are not washed. And this Pharisee is just like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, are you serious? And so here they come to Jesus with this horrible accusation, you didn't wash your hands before you ate, right? And Jesus says, is that the best you got? I mean, y'all came all the way from Jerusalem over this? And so Jesus had been waiting for the opportunity. And he says, can I, can I ask you a question? And watch what he asked them. And why do you break the commandment of God? You got your tradition of the elders. Let's talk about something a little bit more serious. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And Jesus has got their attention now. And by the way, you don't debate Jesus. I don't know if you ever noticed reading through the Gospels, no one ever won a debate with Jesus. And here they go. And so Jesus begins to talk about something very important, which is the difference between commandments and traditions. Now let me say a word, first of all. I I, I like traditions. I'm a traditional guy. 
I really am. I mean, at Thanksgiving, June's like, do you really want turkey again? I'm like, yep. Dressing? Yep. Cranberry sauce? Yep. Giblet gravy? Yep. I mean, I, I want the same thing. I mean, if, if I come in and we've got fried fish for Thanksgiving, I'm going to be disappointed, even though I love fried fish, okay? I mean, I'm a traditionalist, and so I, I like tradition. I really do. But one of the problems we run into is when tradition, unfortunately, butts its head up against the commandments of God. Tradition is defined simply as an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior. And we all follow them. Okay? We all follow them. In my family, for instance, the tradition was this. At your birthday, and, and June and I have got a grandson who we're going to be celebrating his birthday today. Uh, his birthday was actually Friday, but the big party's today. You know, at a birthday in my family... Mother would cook a birthday cake, and whoever got home after school first cut it. Okay? No candles, no presents, birthday cake. All right? And so if it was my sister's birthday, but I got there first, guess what? I'm getting me a slice of her birthday cake. I tried that the first time June had a birthday in our family. I didn't understand there were other traditions. And her family's tradition was you had candles and the person whose birthday it was cut the cake. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I mean, you got to wait for them to get home to get a slice of birthday cake? Come on. Well, that was June's family tradition and now it's mine. Okay? All right. Tradition has a way of doing that to us, right? We, we all have experienced that. Jesus explains the problem here. He says, for God commanded. He wants us to hear that. God commanded. Go straight to the Ten Commandments. You don't get more, you know, God commanded than that. Honor your father and mother. And by the way, you go to the next chapter. Whoever reviles or curses his father and mother, they, they, they've got to die. God wants us to respect our parents. And then Jesus says, but let me tell you what you scribes and Pharisees have done. You've developed a tradition. And that tradition allows you to violate God's command. Here's the tradition. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. Now, this is simply called the tradition of Corban. Okay? And here's the way it works. June and I have done well. We've got money in the bank. My, my mom or her mom or dad or whatever, have, you know, they're getting older. They're, they're running out of money. Now, instead of June and I taking money out of our account to help our parents, we simply go to our mom or our dad and we say, you know what? We've made a vow to God that everything that we have is, belongs to him. And so we're going to use it as long as we live. But the moment we die, it'll go to the temple and it'll belong to God. And by doing that, I do not have to take care of my parents. That's the way it worked. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees had been asked about that. And they said, well, here's the problem. You made an oath to God. You don't violate an oath to God. 
And so if you've made an oath to God that this money belongs to God, then yes, you don't have to take care of your parents. And Jesus just kind of looks at that and goes, that's nuts. That's absolutely ridiculous. You voided the command of God for the sake of your tradition. And boy, he just absolutely unloads on them. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Now, that wouldn't be so problematic, except for the fact that we do it all the time. I mean, we have a way of elevating our traditions above the laws of God. By the way, which is one reason why people on the outside who come in, they're going, why do you have all of these strange traditions? And, and they start out good. They really do. There's a purpose behind them. But boy, they end up taking us the opposite direction. I mean, y'all remember these. Y'all remember? You're like, well, we've got, you know, eh, we used to. Right? I grew up in a church just like this. Do this in remembrance of me. It was on the table up front. In fact, here's how church started when I was a kid. The men serving communion would line up in the back. They would line up in order of which ones was going to take which, you know, pews. And then at right at, right at in our church, 930, right at 930, the doors were open. The preacher, the opening prayer, the song leader, the announcer, they would start marching down. The men would march down behind them, you know, two by two. And, of course, as they walked down, everybody would get quiet because it was time for church. And the men would come down. The men would come up who were presiding up here, who were leading the worship. The others would stand there. And then they'd all stand and then at the same time be seated. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all don't, but, you know, many of you do. And then we began the traditions. How do you do worship? And what's fascinating is that something, and David talked about this, this was a memorial about Jesus. And yet we could take a memorial about Jesus, and the next thing you know, we could mess it up. In other words, we would debate, for instance, the bread. Did the bread have to be unleavened, or could it be leavened? And you'd have big arguments about that. Or what about the fruit of the vine? Did it have to be grape juice or could it be wine? Or did it have to be wine or could it be grape juice? I mean, the first time I drank an alcoholic beverage was at church. I'm serious. I was on a campaign, Dennis, from Freed Hardeman. We went to a church and guess what they served for communion? Wine. I mean, when, when they took the lid off, I'm like, they left that up there too long. <laughs> Good night. And when it came by and I turned it up, I'm like, whoo. You know, I mean, you had a whole bunch of Freed Hardman guys going, that's not bad. <laughs> true story. True story. That was a true story. But we had churches that split over it. We had churches that split over using one cup or multiple cups. Dr. Harold Hayslip, one time president of Lipscomb University, tells a story how, of him growing up in Kentucky in a one-cup church. And, and they didn't really think anything about it until a brother in church came down with TB. 
And when he came down with TB, and of course back then they didn't understand a lot about you know how diseases were communicated, you know, was transferred from one person to another. But anyway, the elders came together and they made a decision that, you know what, because that brother has TB, maybe we shouldn't be drinking after him. And so they decided to have two cups, one for the church and one for the brother who had TB. I'm serious. Serious as a heart attack. And and Brother Hayslip said that as soon as that man got his separate cup, everybody else wanted their separate cup. And they became a multi-cup church. But prior to that, I mean, can y'all imagine us being a one-cup church? It would take the entire service to get all around everybody. And plus, everybody, by the way, you want a way to get everybody sitting on the front row? Go to a one-cup church. I'm sitting right there, and that's where it's going to start. We split over that. We split over things such as coverings over the communion table. We've had fights over whether or not men had to wear coats and ties. I mean, I had someone telling me that, that they had a relative who, if the guy serving communion didn't have a tie, he, would, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't take communion. He simply wouldn't take it. Somebody else would have to come over and give him communion who had a tie and, and, and I mean everything from the length of hair. I remember when the elders would investigate all the young men. I know these guys are like, wait a minute, they did what? Yeah, I mean, if your hair was over your ears, guess what? You couldn't serve communion. And, and then the debate, and I, I love this one, the debate about whether or not only men could serve communion, could women serve communion. And, of course, we all recognize that women always serve communion this way, right? I mean, we always, I mean, if... A, June got a communion tray. She passed it to the next person, whether it's a man or a woman. She, she could, you could pass communion horizontal. You just couldn't pass communion vertical. I'm serious. I'm being serious as I can be. I mean, the logic betrays me. First church I preached for only had one aisle. The pews all ended at the wall, or the chairs. We had uh, a theater chairs, and they all ended at the wall. And so the sister at the end, if she was sitting at the end, she had to turn around and pass it vertically. And we weren't sure she could do that. You know, you can't pass it that way, you, you know. And by the way, notice what we've gone to now. Are we going to go back to those? Probably not. Probably not. And by the way, I tell people all the time, have you noticed that women are now serving communion? They come in, they grab it on the back, and they, they walk in with it, and they walk vertical with communion. And, 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 and oftentimes, you ladies get the communion for your husbands, right? Isn't it amazing how things change, and we don't think through them? We really don't think through them. Tradition has a way of doing that to us. And I'm guilty of it as, as well as anybody. There are times that I have to pause and think, okay, now wait a minute. What are we doing? And why are we doing it? And how do we get here? And, and brothers and sisters, that's just one case of communion in all the traditions, all the traditions that surround it. One of the first elders I ever served believed that you had to break the bread, Blake. So he'd take the lid off the tray, hold the bread up. Jesus took bread and... Then he'd break it. Now, I appreciated the, the, the symbolism, beautiful symbolism. But are you going to require that? 
I mean, can y'all imagine a brother up here breaking the bread that you're fixing to eat, especially if he doesn't have washed hands? Going back to Jesus, right? That would create problems, wouldn't it? Traditions must never be allowed to take from or contradict the commands of God. We as Christians, especially leaders, elders, teachers, ministers, we have to step back and we need to ask some serious questions. Are we doing it the way we're doing it because that's the way God commands us to do it? Or is it simply a tradition that we have developed that, you know what? I mean, would it shock you that Sunday school was not part of the early church's practice? They didn't have Sunday schools on Sunday. I mean, would it shock you that they probably didn't have Sunday night services? Not on a day of the week that was for the Roman Empire a work day. It wasn't, I mean, it was the, it's the Lord's day for Christians, but for the rest of the world, it was a work day. And so you probably met whenever you could get together. I mean, I think about all the traditions we've developed over the years, and the question becomes one of when do we make traditions so important that they negate or in some way diminish the commands of God? He then called the people together, and he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a, a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, in front of these Pharisees and scribes, he says, listen, it's not the the filth on your hands. It's not even what goes in your mouth. I mean, and of course, if you're a Jew, this one right here is freaking you out. Because Jews, all the way back in the Old Testament, of course, the Old Testament says there's certain food that's clean, there's certain food that's not clean. And yet, here comes Jesus, and Jesus seems to be teaching something very differently. The disciples come to him and notice what they said. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And then Jesus' response is, well, I'm sorry. And Jesus gets as blunt as I... I mean, Jesus is incredibly blunt here. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Scribes, Pharisees. And then he says, and let them alone. They're blind guides. And blind guides that, that lead blind people both fall into the ditch. And so you've got to make a decision. Are you going to follow their leadership or are you going to follow mine? I mean, Jesus is getting blunt here, and he needs to. Peter comes and says, all right, Lord, can you explain what you just said? And look at Jesus again. Just having said, blind guides lead blind people, he says, are you also without under... Do you not see what I'm talking about? He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's expelled? I mean, you can't be made spiritually impure simply because you eat shrimp, okay? By the way, shrimp was something you couldn't eat. I mean, you can't be made spiritually impure because you eat country ham. Can I get an amen on that one? I mean, that's not what makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of the mouth because it comes from the heart. Because out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adultery and sexual immorality. I mean, all sin comes out of the heart. That's what makes us unclean. It's not what we eat. It's who we are. And so lesson number two is that sin is always a heart problem. Always. Always starts right here. It's not about what you eat or what you don't eat. We all have preferences there. But they're not right and wrong preferences. Jesus then goes north to 
Tyre and Sidon, and he meets a Canaanite woman. One of the most amazing stories Matthew tells because of just the emphasis he puts on it. And so they go up north. This is way up north. This is up in modern-day Lebanon, okay? So he's going way up north. He's teaching his disciples when this Canaanite woman comes. And look at what she's saying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, Canaanites were the enemies of the Israelites. This is a descendant of the, you know, people, the Philistines and the Amorites and, you know, the Jebusites, all of those ites that lived there in Israel. You know, which one she came from, we don't know. But she's identified by Matthew as a Canaanite woman. Which, by the way, Jesus speaking to her is about as bad as Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. I mean, the Samaritans and the Canaanites were on the same par, both hated by the Jews. And this woman comes up, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And what follows is one of the most amazing stories that Matthew tells that we usually just read right over it. Watch what happens. And he did not answer her a word. Total silence. And the woman's still crying. Lord, son of David, help me. Lord, son of David, would you please help me? Please help me, Lord. Son of David, would you help me? And it gets so bad that the disciples come to him and says, and begged him, look at that, begged him, send her away for she's crying out after us. Lord, this is embarrassing. And then Jesus says something. And you have to pause and ask a simple question. Why does he say this? Why does he say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Is he reminding himself of his mission? I don't think so. He is saying to the apostles, you already know this, I was sent to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But I think he's also saying it for the woman to hear. And now, watch what comes out of it. But she came and knelt before him. To my knowledge, I've never... Well, let me take that back. I've, I had a person one time at a spiritual retreat come and kneel in front of me and say, can I wash your feet? Kneeling in, some, in front of someone is, is an act of humility. And this woman comes to Jesus and says, Lord, help me. Let that sink in. Lord, help me. It's not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. Dogs was a term used by Jews to refer to Gentiles. I mean, is Jesus being racist here? No. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. You turn over to Philippians, Paul will reverse it and refer to the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus as dogs. So it's fascinating how they would make a play on that word. But notice... It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord. That's right. It's not. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their masters. Boy, look at all the words she uses. Master's table. And Jesus steps back and goes, Wow! Yes! This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm looking for. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your 
faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Now, don't miss that. Only time in Matthew's gospel that someone is declared as having a great faith. The centurion early on has, has a, an incredible faith. But this woman has a great faith. By the way, this is to be compared with the faith of Peter in the previous chapter. Remember that faith? When Jesus got in the boat and said, Oh, you of what? Little faith. Here's a Canaanite woman with great faith. And instantly her daughter is healed. What is going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus is holding this Canaanite woman, much like he did the the Samaritan woman in John 4. He's holding up her faith and said, this is what I'm looking for in people. Why? What was it about her faith that made it so great? Number one, great faith begins by seeking Jesus. This woman lives way up north. And she's heard rumors of a faith healer of this remarkable individual who claims to be a descendant of David. She's done her research, and she comes to Jesus, seeks him out. How she heard that Jesus was up there, I don't have a clue. But boy, she seeks him out. And that's where great faith begins, Hebrews eleven six. You've got to believe that God is, but not only that God is, but he rewards those who seek him. Number two. Great faith, or lesson number four in our list. Great faith begins by understanding who Jesus is. I mean, she doesn't call him Jesus. She calls him, O Lord, Son of David. I mean, she had done enough research to know who he claimed to be and what that claim meant for the Jewish people. And she wasn't afraid to call him Son of David, a messianic term. She knew who he was. And lesson number five, great faith begins by never giving up. She's following Jesus, crying out, following Jesus, crying out to the point that the apostles, please, Lord, would you just send her away? But she's not willing to leave until Jesus answers her request. And you know, that's what God looks for in all of us. Are you willing to never give up following after me? Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus says, that's why I wanted to hear. Your daughter is healed. Jesus then comes down south. And, and Mark tells us, Matthew leaves this out, but Mark tells us that after leaving the Tyre and Sidon area, he came toward the Sea of Galilee, but he went in the region of the Decapolis, something very different that Jesus normally didn't do. The word Decapolis means the ten cities. Polis means city. We get our word political from it. And so... Deca, 10. So these are 10 Gentile cities or Greek cities which are on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Here's, here's northern Israel. Uh, you see the Sea of Galilee up here, Capernaum up in the northwest corner, uh, the Jordan Valley coming south as the water runs toward the Dead Sea. And notice up here you see the Decapolis. And, and these cities are far more. I mean, they're scattered throughout this whole eastern side. And so Jesus goes into the Decapolis. Why? And I think the answer is this woman, this Canaanite woman, has has opened up Jesus as he begins to explore the Gentile mission. And so with the feeding of the 5,000 that are all Jews in chapter 14, he moves a different direction. Great crowds are now following him. I mean, he's moving into 
Gentile area. There's Jews over there, but there's a lot of Greeks over there. And he's moving over to this area, and now great crowds are bringing the sick, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and he's healing them all so that the people are absolutely going, who in the world is this? And notice they glorified the God of Israel. I mean, here are people recognizing there is a God in Israel. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Listen, they've been with me three days. I'm not going to send them away to faint on the way back home. You need to feed them. And of course, their response, they didn't get the feeding of the 5,000. Lord, where in the world are we going to get enough bread in this place for these people? And he says, what do you have? And they said, well, we've got, you know, seven loaves and a few small fish. Set them down. You know the story. He feeds them. Seven basketfuls this time, 12 the first time, seven this time, and 4,000 men besides women and children were fed. And, and of course, you have to ask, are these Gentiles? And when we watch The Chosen, they, they say in, in The Chosen, most likely, and I suspect most likely it's true, as Jesus begins to talk about taking the gospel to all the world. And so this week, Read Matthew 16. Stan's going to be preaching next week, Matthew 16. Excited about that. I mean, he's been working on this lesson a while, and boy, it's going to be... That is next week, right, Stan? Okay, just want to make sure. I hope I didn't speak for you, brother. All right, so read chapter 16 this week. Pray for those who don't know Jesus all around us. Pray for them. Number three, do an honest evaluation of you and, and, and your traditions. It's not that traditions are bad. But boy, you need to be aware of what is tradition and what is commandment and make sure you don't mix them up. And then number four, who are you reaching out to? Jesus reached out even to a Canaanite woman. Let's not let anybody fall by the wayside, no matter who they are. Who are you reaching out to? If you have a need this morning, we're going to have shepherds who are going to be going to the walls here, some of them with their wives upstairs as well. If you have a need, seek out one of our elders Share with them what that need is. They'll be glad to handle that. If you've got a need at all that we can assist with, why don't you come? As together we stand and sing.